So this is a program that I put together for our history conference last September. And it really does represent a lot of years of, of, uh, of hit and miss work on this topic. And so this is uh, directed towards Virginia City, but I think it's kind of applicable to most mining camps in Montana. And um, I have a few specific things about a few other places too, but mostly this is about Virginia City. Um, mining camps like Virginia City uh, were notorious for their public women. And, um, you know, even though these women were so notorious, we really don't know that much about them. And uh, accurately interpreting this, this topic uh, is really, really difficult. It's, um, it's a challenge and it's, and it's truly an impossible task to do it accurately unless you use primary resources uh, as the basis of your research. And that's because, you know, there's really no topic that's more vulnerable than prostitution. Um, it's just so much of it is legend and hearsay. And it's hard to separate fact from fiction. And, um, you know, you hear stories and those stories become stuck in uh, community memories and they get passed down as truth. And so a lot of what we know is, um, is stuff that's not verified. And I think very few historians even really can verify a lot of those facts. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, <clears throat> this particular image that you're looking at, I was felt really excited to find this because it's a very rare sketch by a person who was actually there. The person was visiting this um, this hurdy-gurdy house, and he sketched it as he was there. And there are certain things that you can, you can see in this picture that are really important. One of the things is the music that's provided there. You can see it's a three-piece orchestra or three-piece band. Uh, sometimes they use pianos, but more, than, more, than often, more often than not, they use these bands here. And the other thing I want you to notice is the way the women are dressed. You know, they're not dressed like Miss Kitty <laughs> in the saloon. Uh, they are actually dressed as a woman would dress if she were going to a party. And that's a really important thing to, uh, to take in and to think about as we uh, discuss this topic. Now this is a really interesting picture. Is Becca here? Becca, Becca's probably in the other room. This comes from a very odd collection called the Morrison Collection uh, that we have in the Montana Historical Society Photograph Archives. And this is actually from uh, Miles City of a little bit later time period, maybe 1890s or so. Um, it is the only photograph that I know of that show, actually shows a uh, brothel with its customers and the women who work there. There's a series of, a, of about three photographs, three or four photographs. I'll show you uh, another one here in a moment. Uh, but this is a very interesting photograph because it shows mixed race, it shows the women, and it shows their customers. I would assume that some of them, at least some of them, are probably from Fort Keogh. And the other thing that's really interesting about this, you'll notice how the women are dressed. This is a time when women wore corsets. 
Uh, and these women are not dressed like that. They're wearing what are called Mother Hubbard dresses for easy access. <laughs> and, you know, it's no joke. That is really true. And that is how the women dressed when they were working. They didn't dress the way you see them in the movies. This is how they dressed. Um, and this photograph also is very interesting because it shows the women grouped together drinking, uh, partying maybe, if you will. And um, you can see that they are having a pretty good time. And again, they are dressed in these Mother Hubbard dresses. Um, I came across a really interesting article about somebody who went out on the town and was describing Helena and, and one of the one of the dance halls that they were visiting and they were talking about a particular woman who was oh my goodness she was dressed in a mother hubbard dress and they were you know really talking about that because it's not the way women went out in public really except for these types of women so um take note of that um so prostitution was never legal and um it's history in any community I don't care what community it is, it's a very complicated history. And it's certainly not a topic of polite discourse. You know, you didn't talk about uh, prostitution at the dinner table. And people, newspaper editors, newspaper reporters didn't write about it either, especially when it, they were writing about their own communities. It just wasn't something that you talked about in polite, uh, polite company. And so that makes it even harder, you know, really to to, um, to research, there are specific articles about women's antics, as we'll see, uh, but, um, but the business itself is very rarely written about. Um, so these are some of, the, some of the primary resources that you might use if you're researching uh, this topic, and it's pretty much the same thing that you would use if you were researching genealogies. But you know, the women themselves are almost always intentionally anonymous, and so that makes it really hard. And they're notorious for giving false information about their ages, about their uh, place of birth, about who their parents were. You know, the very things that help us um, sort out our own families, we just don't get that kind of information from uh, women who were in this business, usually. Um, so the lack of information fosters, you know, these, uh, these, these myths and fuels speculation. Um, so we have um, newspapers that you can use. We have... Uh, historic maps, Sanborn maps, census reports, where the women actually are called different things, as we'll see. Um, we have um, different types of maps, and we also have um, sort of archaeology as a, a rather newly emerging way to, to look at, um, at this, um, this subject. So Virginia City really... Uh, opens a window. I think doing this kind of research in Virginia City, it opens a window into a very little, little understood aspect of cultural history. And it does begin to paint a portrait of um, a few characters that I think are unknown up to this point. I don't think anybody knows anything about them except for me, maybe. 
and uh, uh, just, just some interesting things. So these are just some things that I have kind of discovered. Uh, this particular article, sorry, it's kind of blurry there, but it is nearly impossible to focus on these women's personal lives. And uh, so we can, look at, we can look at articles in the newspaper. This is a really good example. And I think the Montana Post here seems to say it all in reporting this story. Um, it's about a woman of easy virtue who stole three half dollars from a dance hall patron. She took these three half dollars and she put them in her pocket. And she said, come and get them if you want them. And he didn't want to lay hands on her. So he called, the, um, he called the police, and the woman refused to give the coins up. Well, the policeman didn't want to go after him either, you know. <laughs> and so he, he gave up. And so in this article, um, the reporter says, this woman's name was Ranch Mary. Um, we don't know what her other name is. And that really kind of says it all. You know, these women had these uh, aliases, and they changed their names as often as they changed their clothes. Um, and so it's very, very difficult to, difficult to research them. So rather than focusing only on the individual, we can do that sometimes, as we'll see. But rather than focusing only on the individual, we can also learn a lot by looking at the business itself, uh, analyzing how it correlates with local economies and uh, demographics, and identifying the actual locations where the business was practiced. And we can do that in Virginia City, which is kind of cool, I think. So um, while in some mining camps um, of a little bit later date, this is the Klondike, for example, women sometimes did congregate in one area that you might term a red light district. Um, usually it's called the line. Um, but in the, you know, when you want to notice how these women are dressed. They're wearing those Mother Hubbard dresses. Okay. So you have these cribs, or you have a place where the women did congregate in, um, you know what cribs are, right? Uh, little one-room offices where the women worked. So cribs or brothels, sometimes they were located together in this later, a little bit later time period. But in Virginia City and in the unorganized uh, mining camps, in Montana and elsewhere of this really earlier time period kind of um, where the population was almost exclusively male, there really are no red light districts as we might think of them uh, in most urban areas until 1885. And before 1885, there are really, um, really no districts. Uh, 1885 is a key year in Montana because at that time, the Montana Territorial Legislature passed a law that gave cities the right to prevent and suppress prostitution. So it was up to individual cities to take care of, of it if they wanted to. And um, so it's this law, really, that created red light districts and made the women, you know, sort of push the women into uh, areas, neighborhoods, I, I guess, if you will. Before that time, uh, women of ill repute pretty much intermingled with the regular population. They, um, um, they strolled freely down the streets, they um, shopped in the stores, and they pretty much attended community events if they wanted to. Mary Ronan, some of you may be familiar with, um, with her, who came to Virginia City as a 10-year-old 
made this astute observation. She said, the fancy ladies were easy recognizable on the streets by their painted cheeks and the way they flaunted their gaudy clothes. Sometimes one appeared through a window lounging in a dressing gown and puffing on a cigarette. These women were so in evidence that I felt no curiosity about them. I knew that besides being so evident upon the streets, they went to hurdy-gurdy houses and to saloons and that they were not good women. I didn't analyze why that was. Well, this sort of uh, underscores my point that there really weren't any red light districts in that early time period. If you, this is a census record from Bozeman Village in 1880. And if you look up at the very top, the person who is enumerated there, uh, Nelson Story, you guys know who Nelson Story was, with his family underneath. And if you look at the, um, look at the list of occupations, so he's listed as a capitalist, and then you have his family, and then you have a couple of laborers, and, laborers, and then you have prostitutes. So the family is living very close proximity you know, to these women who are practicing, you know, the profession. So it just sort of goes to show you that here you have a very prominent person who's living in a place where women are also practicing prostitution. It's all mixed up, and there's really n no district per se. Um, there are a few ways besides the Mother Hubbard dresses, which you can see these women are also wearing, uh, but there's a couple of other ways that you could identify women who were as Mary Ronan said, not good women. A striped stockings is one of the clues. A good women didn't wear striped stockings. They wore white stockings or black ones. Um, and these women are drinking alcohol, which good women didn't do, at least in public. They didn't do that. And of course, they didn't smoke cigarettes. That's another tip-off. Montana Post editor uh, Thomas Dimsdale is one of the very few who actually did write at length on prostitution in Virginia City. In fact, he writes a veritable treatise on it. It's in the very beginning of his Vigilantes of Montana, if you want to read it. Um, but he corroborates Mary Ronan's observation that the women were pretty much ubiquitous. He says, women of easy virtue are to be seen promenading through the camp, habited in the gayest and most costly apparel, and receiving fabulous sums for their purchased favors. Virginia City's public women, as I say, were not confined to any particular area. It was in the dancing halls and the hurdy-gurdy houses that assignations, that is, arrangements for more than just dancing, um, usually took place. And as Dimsdale pointed out, the evil only commences at the dance house. So now we have to have a couple of definitions here. Uh, the term hurdy-gurdy house, uh, that goes back to California, to the California gold rush um, with the 49ers, where hurdy-gurdies were machines, like you see the guy playing here. They were stringed instruments that worked on a crank and um, they were, uh, you know, they were the thing that provided music in those California dance halls, hurdy -gurdy, and that's why they were called hurdy-gurdy houses. But by the time of the Montana gold rushes, 
uh, hurdy-gurdy machines were out of style. And as you saw in that drawing, uh, usually they had a three-piece orchestra of some kind, or sometimes they had a piano. But they didn't ever use hurdy-gurdy machines. But the term sort of stuck. So um, that's why we have this, this word, uh, hurdy-gurdy house. In the hurdy-gurdy house, or dancing saloon, for a dollar, which is about $30 on today's market, a patron could buy a drink and a dance. And sometimes the women drank, uh, women didn't really drink alcohol there. They drank uh, a weak tea that they passed off as champagne. You know, it was sort of illusion. And uh, both prostitutes and respectable women worked in these places, in hurdy-gurdy houses, in dancing, uh, dancing halls. Um, so it was maybe, I don't know if you could really tell who was who. Maybe you could, maybe not. Sometimes they even wore uniforms, like you see here. Um, they were dressed actually pretty demurely, you know, in the hurdy-gurdy houses and the dancing, dancing halls. But, um, well, the dancing saloons were a little bit different. And this is kind of an extreme illustration. I don't think that they really dressed quite that extremely. But in the dancing saloons, it's not the same thing as a hurdy-gurdy house. Uh, the women wore shin-length dresses, usually. Um, and both types of women, respectable women and not so respectable women, were hired to work there. They worked not on a commission, as they did in the hurdy-gurdy house, but they actually worked uh, for a salary. And if they were selling drinks, sometimes they might get a commission for the drinks. But generally, they worked uh, for a salary. And uh, patrons didn't actually pay for the privilege of dancing with the women in the, in the saloons. So you can see kind of the difference. But again, you know, if a woman had to support a family, it was a good place for somebody to work, whether they were respectable or not respectable. As of February 1865, hurdy-gurdy houses and dancing saloons in Virginia City had to be licensed. Uh, the license was issued by the mayor and the city council. It cost $400 a year to buy a license to open a saloon or a dance or a uh, hurdy-gurdy house. And uh, you, could buy, uh, you could buy a license for half a year or a quarter of a year or one month, which shows the transience, you know, of the population. But you couldn't buy a license for less than a month. So, um, And then again, you can see again this, uh, this same illustration. Virginia City lost population, as you guys probably know, um, to last chance to Helena. Um, and by 1866, the Montana Post noted that Helena was the destination for fugitives from doomed Virginia City. Ex, an ex-Virginia City uh, resident remarked, the prostitutes, pimps, and gamblers are all leaving the place for Helena, and Virginia City is going straight to the devil. <laughs> but I think there was still plenty of action to be had, at least from this uh, illustration, which was, taken, which was done in 1867. In 
In September of 1866, there was this editorial that you see here in the Montana Post where a subscriber wrote, complaining and pleading with the mayor and the police to take action against a notorious dance hall that was on Jackson Street. Fights and profanity among drunken prostitutes apparently was very common, and this was also a residential area, and people were complaining that their, their sleep was being disturbed. And so uh, the writer says, a day or two ago, the mayor notified a woman of doubtful reputation to vacate a house that she had bought because a gentleman in the city complained. So why can't the mayor use his power and gratify the wishes of many other families. So people are complaining because of the noise and because of the drunken people in this uh, very notorious dance hall. Well, um, there were numerous police reports, not just in this dance hall, but you know, throughout that early history in Virginia City of uh, guns fired and um, knives drawn and people injured and uh, you know, those incidences dot the post in the, in the 1860s, and it's interesting that many times the perpetrators were actually women who pulled guns and pulled knives and stuff. Um, Mary Whitney, whose alias was the shotgun, uh, <laughs> drew a knife in a hurdy-gurdy house, and in another incident, a woman fired a derringer at her fellow. Fellow is a coarse term. If you read Mary Ronan, her father would never let her use the word fellow. But they use it in the paper to describe this customer, I guess. Uh, maybe it means customer, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, this woman fired a derringer at her fellow, putting a hole through his coat, which according to the Post was a waste of powder. <laughs> so mention of this notorious Jackson Street uh, dance hall um, in, in this letter here, um, and the incident with the Derringer, which was not an isolated incident, actually brings to mind a very interesting possibility. There was a, an archaeological study that was done, excavation that was done. Uh, this contents corner, which is right on the corner of, um, of Jackson Street and Wallace, and right behind here, um, is where, in this area here, is where the ar archaeological excavation was done about two summers ago. And it's, it's really kind of interesting, and I don't have any proof, but I'm thinking that that notorious dance hall might have been one of these two buildings here, somewhere right here, because they found some interesting um, artifacts. Uh, this is the this is contents corner from the back side. I don't know the date of this photograph, but pretty early because this building is still here. And this is what it looks like today. Um, this extension is still there, contents corner is here, but this area is just a vacant lot now. So at one time it had a lot of buildings on it. And I'm wondering, uh, this is where they did their excavations right in here, and I'm just wondering if that notorious dance hall might have been there because um, they retrieved certain items. One was a Derringer, and another one, uh, like a, a Derringer like a woman you know, would carry. And another one is a shoe, a, uh, a, a shoe, cleated shoe like they would wear in the boxing ring. Well, bare-knuckle boxing was one of the really 
important sports in Virginia City and the longest bare knuckle fight, I think it was like 138 or 40 rounds or something was fought in Virginia City uh, in the 1860s and it was, I mean, it was a world record. And you can read Thomas Dimsdale's blow-by-blow -blow description. It really gets boring, but he relishes every drop of blood and everything explains everything to you. So anyhow, I'm wondering if perhaps that notorious uh, dance hall might have been right back there, and that's why they recovered some of the items that they did. We have no way to prove that. Um, this, this would have been where that was. Um, this is Jackson Street here. You can't really see Wallace Street, but it's right in between right in between here. This is Contents Corner, and this would be the area behind there. Uh, and this is a this map is from 1868. So anyhow, um, you know we can we can kind of speculate on that. Uh, one of the very few standing buildings that we can actually identify as having been a dance hall. In, in the very beginning of its history is this sour beer blacksmith shop, shop. We know that it was at one time a notorious dance hall. It's one of the very few buildings that we can identify in Virginia City as having had that early use. Um, and by the 1870s though, by about 1870, it had already been converted into a blacksmith shop. So, you know, those raucous years really didn't last very long. And um, in time, the line between prostitution and the dance hall began to blur. Um, territorial legislation outlawed hurdy-gurdy houses and dancing saloons actually in 1872. Uh, it was too late for Virginia City because they didn't have any anymore. And so it really didn't matter. But um, in other communities, you know, uh, Chicago Joe is pretty famous. You guys know who Chicago Joe was. Uh, in 1885, she was arrested for running a hurdy-gurdy house and dancing saloon. So she got herself a clever lawyer who, and it was very difficult to find a, an impartial jury because everybody loved her. <laughs> but <laughs> they, uh, they found this jury and they went to court and the, um, the attorney used Webster's Dictionary um, and said, you know, she, she, doesn't, she didn't ever run a hurdy-gurdy house because no hurdy-gurdy machine has ever been seen on her place. <laughs> and, you know, this is the definition of a hurdy-gurdy house, according to Webster's Dictionary. And the other point was, he said to the judge, the lawyer said to the judge, um, you know, she doesn't run a dancing saloon. Have you ever seen a saloon dance? <laughs> so she got off. So by 1870, in Virginia City, uh, those kinds of laws <laughs> really weren't, weren't very necessary. I don't know if you've ever read Harriet Sanders' uh, Biscuits and Bad Men. If you're interested in this time period, it's a wonderful reminiscence about Bannock and about Virginia City and about Helena in the very early, early years, and she tells some wonderful stories. But one of the things she talks about is that um, they built their house, this house, um, three-quarters of a mile out of town because they had two little boys and they didn't want the little boys exposed, first of all, to the miners' bad language, and second of all, to all of the body goings-on. 
Well, by 1867, the town had calmed down to such an extent that they moved the town, or they moved the, um, the house on rollers uh, into town where it is today. And today, you can still see the house. Um, looks very, very similar to its original appearance. Anyhow, um, the 1870 census records uh, a population in, 18, uh, in 1870 uh, in Virginia City of 967 people. That's a far cry from the 10,000 people that you know, flooded the gulch uh, and once inhabited um, uh, the area and spilled over into the thousand, the thousand buildings that uh, the original town site had. Today, there's less than 200 buildings in Virginia City, but at one time, it had a thousand, you know, buildings. So, um, 967 isn't a very big population, and there is absolutely no way to estimate or even guesstimate how many prostitutes might have uh, been in Virginia City in the 1860s. Until that first census, there's really no way we can even guess. Um, the uh, estimates of the population you know, range anywhere from 10,000 people to 30,000, and we just really don't have any way to tell what is an accurate number. And so that, you know, uh, also uh, extends to women and to prostitutes. We have really no, no way of knowing how many there would have been. But we can look at 1870, and uh, when that first census was taken in 1870, um, there were only three white prostitutes uh, in town. And they were, um, interestingly enough, the census taker, the census taker often shows his bias against women or people that he's enumerating. And uh, in the case of Virginia City, you know, they shied away from the word prostitute, and the census taker made up his own term for them, and he called them merchantiles. <laughs> so you can see the first arrow there is pointing to Sarah Hall, who is a merchantile. She has property worth $700, and or she, and she has uh, $500 like in cash is what she's worth, which is, that's a pretty good amount of money. Down here, there are two more merchantiles. This one is by tick marks, so these two are also merchantiles. This one, we don't have any values entered, so we don't really know, but Queen Gibson here uh, is, uh, has $3,000 worth of real estate and $200 worth of personal property. That's quite, you know, quite a lot of money. She's doing pretty well for herself. So those are the white prostitutes. And then, interestingly enough, um, we have um, in 1870, um, we have a substantial population of Chinese. There are, in well, just by comparison, in Helena, in the year 1870, there were about 3,000 residents, and there were some 666 Chinese, which was about 20% of the population. But here in Virginia City, um, out of the 967 residents, 277 were Chinese, 28%. 28% of the residents in 1870 in Virginia City were Chinese. So that was a substantial Chinese um, 
settlement. And we can see here that um, uh, you can see by tick marks there are, I think, seven Chinese merchantiles. And uh, no ages are entered, no names, just China woman. And that's the same actually for the men. They're entered as China man. Um, but it's very interesting that there are seven, you know, seven prostitutes. Uh, well, you know, and I don't know really. This needs to have a lot more. We need to do a lot more research on this. But um, it is kind of an interesting thing because we've got, um, you know, this large male population. And according to a column in the Montana Post, um, although the article is racist and anti-Chinese, uh, the person writing the article had this specifically to say about young Chinese women in Montana territory. Many of them have been torn from their families in China and delivered into the hands of the merchant. They have compelled thousands of maidens to become prostitutes to increase their illicit gains. These wretches are allowed a very limited compensation to furnish them with the necessities of life. They are sent from one, oops, uh, from one to another by their um, overseers who never consult their wishes and are obligated to perform any labor that they select without any regard to its effect upon their health or comfort. They cannot travel to any town in the territory but must conform to the wishes of their superiors in every particular. So note that the Chinese enumerated here, as I, as I mentioned before, are China man and China woman with no names. Um, and it is really, it's, it's pretty sad testament, really. Um, and we need to do more research on whether or not these women were actually imported. We don't really know that they were prostitutes. Maybe they were. They probably were, but we can't say that for sure because the bias of the census taker sometimes categorically labels Chinese women as prostitutes. And uh, uh, we move on here to the 1880 census. Um, I think I have the I think I have the Helena census, so I can show you um, that comparison. But anyhow, in 1880. Um, we have a little bit of a change. We have a different census taker, for one thing. And he has actually managed to write the person's names. So we actually have the people listed by their names. And we have information about them, their ages, um, and uh, of course, their professions. And you have the only, the only Chinese woman that is not listed as a prostitute is this one here. And it's really odd because I don't know why she has an asterisk there. It's like they're putting no occupation in quotation marks or something. I'm not really sure why that is, but she does have two children, and these are the only Chinese children noted in the Virginia City Census anywhere, ever. Um, but you can also see that there are a fair number of prostitutes here. There's a, a few of them. There's another one down here. Uh, tracing these women's names is impossible. It just leads to dead ends. We can't, you know, possibly because of the spelling of the names might be wrong. Uh, they may not be their real names. It's, it's just very, very difficult to, um, to sort them out. But in 1880, the population had gone down um, 
338 residents to a population of 277, and there are 77 Chinese listed among those uh, 277. And again, five, five Chinese prostitutes, no white prostitutes at all. So the white population in Virginia City is so small uh, that it really can't support that business anymore. It's only the Chinese community that can actually support it, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, this is the federal census in Helena, and, um, and this is also interesting, and this is partly maybe the bias of the census taker, I don't know, but here we have two women, Rose Diamond and Fanny Spencer, who have no occupation listed. We know that these two women were practicing prostitutes in 1880 here in Helena, but they're not labeled that way. But the Chinese women, you can see, this person here is labeled prostitute. This person here, who is the mother of two children, um, is also labeled a prostitute. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. Um, and there's another one, whoops, there's another one down here too. So it's, it's just something that we really can't sort out. We need to have a whole lot more information to be able to make a definitive uh, call on that. But it is interesting to look at. By 1900, in Virginia City, the Chinese population was 19. And uh, among the 19 Chinese, there were two women, and neither one of them is listed as a prostitute. One is a laundress, and one, this, this is the laundress here, and the other one is listed as a wife. So either the census taker has lost the bias, or 19 people aren't enough to support prostitutes anymore. You know, it's really hard to know. But the statistics are, I think, very interesting. However, there are obvious reasons for the business of prostitution to again thrive in Virginia City, at least among the white uh, mainstream um, residents. In um, 1890, dredging operations started up again, uh, started up in Alder Gulch and brought in a whole new population of single men and uh, thus a new market. So prostitution resurfaced during this decade uh, among the white population and were able for the first time to actually see where these women worked in town, which is kind of exciting. Because we have wonderful um, Sanborn maps, if you guys are familiar with Sanborn maps, they were drawn for insurance purposes and they're very meticulous, uh, shows the outlines of buildings and their uses. Female boarding is the euphemism for prostitution on the Sanborn map, so we can always tell where red light properties are. And uh, this is 19, 1890 in uh, Virginia City, and this is Wallace Street here, um, and you can see that there are three little buildings here that are labeled female boarding. So we know that that is one place where uh, uh, the women were working, at least one woman was working there, it's a sort of a triple cabin at the uh, south end of the, uh, of the street. And then the other one, the other two places um, that are, this is Culver Street here, Wallace Street's over here, this is an alley, this is Daylight Creek if you're familiar with the area. And uh, these two 
establishments are sort of behind what was at one time the Chinese um, district. And uh, the buildings are labeled you know, Chinese, and this is also labeled Chinese here. Um, Chinese businesses, houses of prostitution are almost always within a pretty close proximity. Um, So in the census, 1900 census, um, we have four women who are called sporting ladies. <laughs> and uh, there's one right here. And she's kind of listed by herself. This is Maggie Coleman. And she is apparently working on her own, not in a house associated with other women. Uh, but these up here, Jenny Ashley is the boarding house keeper, or that's a euphemism for madam. And uh, she has three sporting ladies working for her underneath her here. Um, I tried to research the three women who worked for her, complete dead ends. Probably it wasn't their, they, that wasn't their real names. Who knows? Uh, but I, I couldn't come up with anything on any of them. But Jenny Ashley and Maggie Coleman are a little bit different, and we can sort of piece together a few details about them that are rather interesting. So Maggie uh, Coleman, we'll look at first. Um, I found a marriage certificate for a Maggie Howard who married John Coleman in 1879 in Butte. And then the couple shows up in Butte in the 1880 census. Uh, they're living as husband and wife, but it's kind of curious because here's Maggie Coleman, here's her husband John. Almost always the men of the family are listed first. Well, not here. She seems to be the breadwinner, and she's in partnership with this woman here. Um, and both of them are prostitutes. The husband is the bookkeeper which is kind of interesting, I think. Um, maybe he was their secretary. In Butte, you call a pimp a secretary. Maybe he just you know, did the books for them. Or maybe he worked for somebody else. We really don't know. Uh, but, it's, but that's kind of odd. And then um, in, um, uh, let's see, we have the 1900 census. Uh, we had. Um, I don't want that one, do I? So I think I went backwards there. Oh, oh, that's right. She she does show up as a widow with three children. That's right. I wanted to say she has three living children, uh, and she supposedly she's a widow. But I couldn't verify what happened to John. I have no idea, and I couldn't find any children that belonged to her. So. Um, she kind of turned out to be a, a dead end there. But then looking at Jenny Ashley, Jenny is really the star. She sort of, uh, she left a trail behind her. She really did. So um, Jenny shows up in Anaconda. And um, the records are, here are a little bit more lucrative now that we can, we can search people's names. 
Um, before she came to Virginia City, she sort of had this very rowdy past. Um, the newspapers reveal that she worked in Anaconda in the early 1890s, and um, she left this trail behind her, really. In June of 1890, first she pleaded guilty for, for selling retail liquor without a license and paid a $10 fine. Then in August, this article here, Jenny, along with numerous others, was arrested under this new city ordinance 65, which under um, when statehood happened in 1889, that law from 1885, the territorial law that gave cities the right to uh, regulate prostitution, that's the ordinance that they're talking about here that was taken over by the state, and so the, um, the, the communities have the right to you know, regulate that. So under this new ordinance in 1890, um, she was, um, this allowed the suppression and punishment of, of prostitutes, and so she was fined, along with a lot of other women, $5 each, and of course then they could go along their business and practice some more as long as they paid their fine. In November, then, um, Jenny was arrested for assaulting a co-worker with a broom handle. <laughs> and then she was released on a cash bond. And finally, in um, May of 1891, uh, Jenny Ashley identified as one of the row, which means that she was one of the women who worked in the line. By this time, there is a district in Anaconda because of that ordinance. Um, and working in the row identifies her either as a, as a, uh, uh, a private uh, independent worker or she may have been working in a crib you know, for somebody else. We don't really know. But anyway, she's not attached to a house or a brothel. So she was arrested and fined $10 plus court costs for breach of the peace. Who knows what she did, but anyway, uh, with that, Jenny seems to have really cleaned up her act. She next shows up in Virginia City in 1892 in the business records of grocer S.R. Buford. There's a receipt in his business records that um, uh, notes that Jenny Ashley left two rings, a chain, and two loose diamonds with him for safekeeping. So we don't know where she was working. She must have been working someplace that wasn't very safe or somebody was after her or something. So she put her valuables somewhat place where somebody else couldn't get them. And then in 1897, the Anaconda Standard notes that Jenny's five-room brick house in Virginia City is being built, which is a really great piece of evidence that dates uh, the house where we know she worked, uh, that she owned. Um, and the house, of course, still, still stands. I'll show it to you here in a moment. And um, further, in January of 1899, both the Anaconda and the Butte newspapers note that Miss Jenny Ashley is in town visiting friends. And this is in the society page. So her place of business in Virginia City must have been fairly upscale, and she must have been pretty well known. And she had really cleaned up her act, I think. Both Maggie Coleman and Jenny Ashley show up in the customer accounts of the McGovern Sisters Dry Goods Store between 1909 and 1912. So we know at least until 1912, they were both working or operating there. Um, and they shopped 
in the store there, and we have a record of what they bought, uh, thread, hair ornaments, clasps, and fabric. Uh, and then in the 1910 census, we have um, up here at the top, we have Myrtle Butler, who is listed by herself. So she is an independent contractor of some type. Well, not of some type. She's a prostitute. But <laughs> and then we have, we, have, um, we have Jenny Ashley here. And we have uh, her listed, actually, as Madam. In Virginia City, Virginia City is one of the very few places where they actually list the head of the household as a madam. And so that's very interesting. So we have her listed as madam. She's employing three prostitutes under her. And then we have Maggie Coleman, again, listed also as madam. And she has two women working for her, two prostitutes working for her. So we have a, a growing concern here. We have a, a, a pretty a pretty stable population of, of the business going on um, during the height of the dredging operations. So Jenny, we know that Jenny owned this building here because she shows up in the uh, titles, in the title records. And next to her, um, I'm assuming, that Ma uh, Maggie Coleman was renting this place, probably from, from Jenny. Um, and Myrtle Butler is working out of this little collection of buildings here. Uh, these are called the Green Front. I'll show them to you here in a moment. Uh, but anyhow, Myrtle Butler is really the only independent prostitu prostitute, and she probably worked by herself out of those buildings there. So by 1920, Virginia City's population is only a little more than 300. Uh, Maggie Coleman has left. We don't have any more, uh, any more indication of where she went or what happened to her. Uh, but Jenny Ashley um, is retired at 61. She still lives on Culver Street in this house known as The Brick, known locally as The Brick. And um, by 1930, when Virginia City's population had fallen to 242 people, uh, Jenny's no longer in Virginia City. We don't know what happened to her. Most of the town's body past by this time has pretty much been forgotten. And while some recall the days when the brick was something more than a residence, nobody seems to remember this woman who owned a property, who built the house, who lived there for nearly 30 years, it's, you know, it's a strange and I think very sad circumstance, really. So um, I do know that the person who bought the house after her, I won't say who she is because some of you might even know her, but uh, she bought this house, uh, she and her husband, and she went around telling everybody, oh, it's the cutest little house. It has the cutest little teeny tiny rooms. She had no idea what they were used for. <laughs> And took them all out, so we have no, you know, no evidence of cribs in the house anymore. Um, finally, there's one more woman who actually left quite a record, and her story is intertwined with uh, the three small cabins there at the south end of, uh, or at the west end of Wallace Street, south end of Wallace Street, where Myrtle Butler was working in the um, in 1910. 
So we have this rare photograph of her, and I never would have come across her. I never would have known anything about her had I not written the book about the Montana State Prison, because this is her mugshot. And because she did time at Deer Lodge, I came across her, and um, well, the coincidences were just pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, but um, she used all these different names, and <laughs> you know, I never would have, never would have found her had I not just stumbled across her mugshot because she went by all these different names, and you would never know it was all the same person. Um, but because she had an intake record and because I did a lot of research on her, I, I figured out that she went by all these different names here at different times. Um, but here's her history before she came to Virginia City. In 1883, she shows up in, um, as a passenger on a stagecoach en route from Butte to Helena that's held up by road agents. And a few months later, in September of 1883, this article here, she filed an order to seize the trunk of a co-worker that she had an argument with at Fort Benton. And from this article, we know that she was um, living at a place called the Palace, which was a well-known parlor house, brothel. And note the description of her as a frail beauty. Remember that. Um, <laughs> Then, um, in 1891, she ran a parlor house at Granite, and bar owner Frank McKean shot and killed Jack McDonald over a card game involving Maddie. She's described in this article here as, quote, one of the worst and most repulsive-looking creatures of the whole army of prostitutes living at Granite. A far cry from a frail beauty. Uh, so Maddie is flush at this time, so she comes to Frank's rescue and hires an attorney, and he's acquitted of the murder. So Maddie is next then in um, Phillipsburg in 1893, and she's arrested for assault and battery on an intruder. Eventually, after this, she becomes Frank McKean's mistress, the guy that she hired the attorney for. And the two of them arrive at Virginia City where Frank McKean buys the Fairweather Inn. Uh, he was a well-known bar owner from the really early days. And uh, so he buys the Fairweather Inn and sets uh, Maddie up in business in this, uh, the, these three little cabins here at the end of Wallace Street. Uh, her name appears in the title to the buildings uh, from 1897 to 1902. And today, uh, it's known as the Greenfront Boarding House. It's what it looks like today. But the relationship with Frank, unfortunately, went sour. And Maddie moved back to Phillipsburg. So on December 22nd, 1903, 21st, uh, Maddie shot Charles Hillman in a bar over a $3 debt. She shot him in the foot. He didn't react. She became enraged, shot him in the eye, killed him instantly. She's destitute. So she calls on Frank to repay this obligation. And he hires a prominent Virginia City attorney to, um, well, he's obligated to her, you know, even though they're not together anymore. So he hires this prominent attorney to defend her 
but um, unfortunately the jury didn't buy her insanity plea. And so um, in 1904, she was, uh, she was sentenced to 10 years at Deer Lodge, and in 1904 she uh, was escorted there and became a prisoner. And this is her, this is her intake information. It's very hard to read. It just didn't uh, copy very well. But uh, in one part of it, it says, are there any comments? And the jailer wrote, uh, not to open her mail. Don't open her mail. <laughs> she doesn't want her mail open. <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. But anyway, she, um, she serves um, her sentence, and she's listed in the 1910 prison sentence as being 24 years old. We know that's not true. And she was released um, on June 30th in 1910, and that's the last we know of her. She completely disappears from the record. So historic archaeology is another really interesting avenue that's just beginning to emerge. And in 2010, the Montana Heritage Commission and uh, their archaeologist, Kate McCourt, did a, um, a project at the Greenfront. The buildings were being stabilized. And so um, she was able to excavate around the foundation of the building before they did the stabilization work. So the building was, you know, purchased by Charlie Bovey, and it was actually it was actually used as a depot for the, the train at first. And he had a restaurant in the first building and set up a brothel display in the second building. What he did to change the building, you know, we really have no way of knowing. And this is, the, this is the tragedy of it, really, because, you know, maybe if somebody had documented the building before Bovey came in and changed it, we might have had a better picture of what the business was like. But we have really no idea what, you know, how, how he mucked it up or, or what, he, what he actually did to it. Anyway, um, this is what it looked like when Bovey was using it as a depot from the back. And... So the building, this is again from the back, the building was in desperate need of stabilization, and so Kate took that opportunity to, um, to do the archaeology, and she wanted to see if she could prove that there was a correlation or that the women who worked at the Greenfront had a relationship with the Chinese settlement that was right next door. And if you look at um, urban Chinatowns, and red light districts across the West, they're almost always adjacent. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One reason is that they're both marginalized populations. Another reason is that the women relied on the Chinese herbalists and pharmacists and physicians for things that Western doctors wouldn't give them uh, or didn't know about, birth control, uh, herbal remedies for um, venereal diseases, and also opium not for recreational purposes, but opium taken to the point of overdose causes spontaneous abortion. So there were good reasons for red light districts and China, Chinese settlements to be together. And that was the case in Virginia City. So Kate wanted to see if she could prove that there was a symbiotic relationship there. So 
She um, excavated around the foundation and all of those pink squares are test pits where she dug. Um, all of them with the pink are where they found Chinese artifacts. And the one, the number 13, the only one that they didn't find Chinese artifacts in was nothing more than tailing piles. There were no artifacts at all. So that's really uh, proves the point that there was a relationship. Uh, these are some of the artifacts. There's a thimble, uh, a toothbrush, part of a toothbrush, an opium can lid, and Chinese, the four different types of Chinese ceramics. You can actually see these artifacts that I've just shown you in the Chinese exhibit at the very beginning of it there by the women's bathroom. There's a case that has these items in it if you want to look at them. So anyway, it was an interesting project and certainly proved the point that yes, there was uh, a relationship between the two groups. So um, this is uh, back to that uh, 1868 sketch. And um, just to quickly, to quickly summarize my points here, um, primary resources tell us that Virginia City's boomtown male-dominated population was body and pretty boisterous. And as demographics began to change, the skin trade dwindled and remained viable mostly in the Chinese community. Um, this change uh, changed as the dredging operations moved in to Alder Gulch and the Chinese residents moved on. Into the 20th century, three separate houses, the green front, the brick, and its rental next door served the dredging crews through the 1910s. And by 1920, all but Jenny Ashley had moved on. Jenny, who was retired by 1920, lived at the Brick for probably a few years more. We don't really know. But by 1930, she is uh, gone and no longer appears in the primary sources. Death records have not been found for any of these women. And so far, there's no real end to any of their stories. But you know, there's always something more that you can discover if you look. And each little detail adds to the collective history of these women, uh, silent women, who did have one thing in common, the sisterhood of the oldest profession. Be glad to take questions.